Please be advised, all music tracks used in this production are sole property of Kelson Communications and are original compositions. Thank you. Hey, it's Scary Jones, executive producer of Elvis Duran and the Morning Show on Z100. I want to talk to you all about my friend and fellow Brooklyn College alumnus, Silas. Your e-journalist, social work advocate, Silas hosts and produces the award-winning Kelson On The Air Social Work Podcast. My friend and fellow BCR alum is now known nationally and internationally as Silas, your e-journalist, social work advocate. His podcast is also listed as one of the top social work podcasts. You must follow the award-winning Kelson On The Air Social Work Podcast. Hello, travelers. We'd like to introduce you to Hop-In Bus Service, LLC, founded in 2018. Our goal is to provide people across the U.S. with world-class travel and tourism services. Our expertise allows us to offer our customers the best deals. We've built a reputation on tailoring our services to meet your needs. We specialize in motor coach buses and party buses. We offer clean vehicles and professional drivers for your next trip or occasion. Our passion is safe traveling. We're a contract carrier licensed to operate in all 48 states. We believe in providing a personal touch beyond just making your next charter bus or party bus reservation. You can book us today for your next amusement park, casino, or family reunion trip. We can handle all of your transportation needs like corporate events, weddings, or proms. We're committed to making travel easy for you. For a free quote today, call 833-774-6746. That's 833-774-6746. And remember, don't just stand there, hop in. To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public to the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate, host of the award-winning Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, bringing you another episode. And today, I'm very thrilled and honored to introduce my guest for today, who's a colleague of mine, and uh, that is Miss Haley Ingersoll. She's an MSW. She is a social work generalist, content writer, health experience researcher, and community programs manager. Haley attended the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse for her BS in sociology and completed her master's of social work studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She focused on policy and administration, and her expertise lies primarily with mental health advocacy, which is going to be a key point of how we're going to be um, embarking on this interview and this discussion, mental health advocacy, healthcare equality improvement efforts, as well as program and project administration and management. She was a 2020-2021 Network of Social Work Management Policy Fellow, and her presentation was entitled The Healthcare System, Hearing What Ails. She now resides in Pittsburgh, PA, and enjoys traveling, podcasting, reading, running, baking in her spare time. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce our guest for today, Ms. Haley Ingersoll. Haley, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Silas. What a great uh, 
intro there too. I'm so excited <laughs> to be chatting with you. And it's always been such a highlight since that fellowship when we were buddied together. It's It's been great kind of building rapport with you and of course, learning about your communications and your podcast. So thank you for everything you do to elevate the profession. Well, absolutely. Thank you so kindly for those kind words. So um, what, what we would like to do here at the Kelso on the Air um, Social Work Podcast is bring our guests on so they can educate listeners. Okay, and, and you have a specific niche that you've carved out um, almost like a uh, a level of expertise, for lack of a better term. Um, and it all centers around, well, two things are centers around mental health and wellness and patient care and satisfaction. So one of the first things I'd like you to just kind of um, start the conversation off with is the fact that um, you, you you state that we all have mental health and, and it's more than just uh, illness or the absence of disorders. So give our listeners your insight into mental health and what it really means based on that statement that you provided. Yeah, so often I think we kind of look at things from this illness-based kind of Western mindset. And in reality, mental health is so much more than that. It's it's our day-to-day practice and the way that we take care of ourselves. And um, and the health aspect of that really is more than just the disorder that you have. It's your environment that you live in, your community that surrounds you. And I think um, we could really benefit from looking at things with a more proactive mindset because mm-hmm. Again, w- within the U.S., I think we often wait until things reach a point of crisis, mm. and there's been a growing movement around that to reduce stigma so that people are accessing services sooner and more openly sharing their experience because it can otherwise be this very isolating thing that we feel a lot of shame or stigma around. So when I say that mental health is more than just the absence of illness, I'm really saying that it's something that we have all of the time, regardless of a diagnosis and something that deserves more attention, whether it's in, you know, day-to-day life, going to therapy, or just simply practicing mindfulness and really understanding that as a part of our overall well-being. A couple of things that you mentioned, and I want to just kind of hit on those. You you mentioned the term Mm -hmm. self-care, and that's become real huge, especially in the last two and a half years with the, uh, the, the onset of the pandemic, uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, the racial unrest that's been, you know, permeating throughout the country, um, isolation. So uh, as a social worker and as social workers, you know, you know, we're now being encouraged for us to manage our self-care. Um, but what does that mean when you say that as a social worker, what should the, the general listening public take away from the, the term self-care from a mental health standpoint? Yeah, I have a tough time prescribing a one-size-fits-all response to that, really, mm-hmm. because I think self-care is so individualized, and often it has it's become kind of a buzz term, or there's like a commodification, right, of mm-hmm. self-care, where it's like, you just need to buy yourself a vacation or a face mask or do this or that, and sometimes it's like the really ugly, I need to take a day off from work because I'm burnt out kind of mm-hmm. self-care, mm-hmm. so it really depends. And at the ethos of social work, it's meeting yourself where you're at and understanding right. your your limits, your boundaries, asking for help, delegating, you know, taking time outside. I think a lot of a lot of us encountered that during the pandemic, the value of just walking around and 
loafing around in your neighborhood, seeing who's part of your social fabric in your day to day. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough for me to recommend broad scale self-care mm -hmm. okay. in social work. Of course, like I think the last several years have underscored the importance of practicing that and mm -hmm. ensuring that we encourage that with the people around us being aware how the people around us are doing. Um, and I don't know if that quite answers your question, but, um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of part of it is just understanding that it might take a tailored approach. Very good. That certainly food for thought. Um, and and uh, many times people who may feel like they need mental health uh, treatment uh, or need to seek out a mental health professional because of stress, because of anxiety, because of worry, because of finances, but they tend to shy away and stay away because of something that you just mentioned previously, which is stigma. And that, that has prevented a lot of people from all walks of life from actually going out and seeking the care um, that they need. So in, in your opinion, and I'm just going to um, pose this as something that maybe you've come across and you've worked with, in your opinion, why does stigma prevent people from seeking the care that they know that they need. Right. Yeah, there, there's so many barriers, and I think you named an important one. It's access and affordability for many people. I know um, Wellbeing Trust put out this bigger report about the federal state of mental health in the U.S. The 2022 report just came out. And one of the things that's kind of named in there is that half of the people estimated to have a mental health disorder in the U.S. aren't seeking care in any way. And we we can't just assume that that was their own individual choice. Like, of course, stigma might prevent a person from wanting to admit that they're going to therapy or be on medication, for instance. But also, I think there is that challenge with finding a therapist that works for you. Or even if you love the therapist that you have, your insurance doesn't cover it and it's expensive. So it is one of those wicked problems where there's so many reasons a person may not seek care. But it can also come down to culture, you know, if there's a understanding that this is between you and God, or this is something that you bring up with your family. Um, mm -hmm. there, are, there are many, many reasons a person may not be seeking care. And yeah, stigma is one one part of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you have a, a background in sociology mm -hmm. and, and you, you basically look at the environmental causes of stresses rather than genetic predisposition of mental health issues. Um, so give our lis listeners a little insight into your viewpoint based on um, that information. Yeah, yeah. One thing I just have gotten very curious with and starting off with my sociology degree, I know a lot of times the reasons that we're led to social work, sociology, psychology, the humanities in general, mm -hmm. is this feeling of me search, right? Like I want to mm -hmm. learn more about myself because mm -hmm. there was something that brought me to that. So mm -hmm. just to be vulnerable, like my life experience was in a household where mental illness was prominent and in mm -hmm. very complex ways, family mm -hmm. trauma played out. And of course, like going to school and being able to learn a little bit more about that made me naturally more curious to keep diving. Um, so sociology was a really great way for me to kind of interrogate the factors within a person's life that can be really um, impactful. So of course, yes, genetics are a big part of that, but 
then when I was able to look at my own family situation and look up a generation and see what environmental factors influenced the reason that my grandparents lived in the environment that they did and how that translated was really fascinating to me. Um, And I did some undergraduate research focused on stigma, particularly relating to schizophrenia. And I pulled in like a masculinity angle with it. Mm. So I created a vignette survey where I said, here's a man and here's a woman and described the exact same symptoms. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting because men were more highly stigmatized in this way because some of the behavior that can be exhibited within schizophrenia is more aggressive or cold. And typically society values when men are like cold and more professional, Mm -hmm. but um, there's a lot of really nuanced angles where you can take that is I guess what Mm -hmm. I'm hoping to say here. Mm -hmm. And that curiosity kind of led me to keep following, um, you know, the societal interactions with how we perceive and treat people with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that that, that, that you brought to mind when you, when you just answered the question, is the fact that um, in this society, in this culture, um, it's pretty much known that um, the male gender is pretty much socialized and conditioned to um, always appear on the exterior to to be tough and, and not phased by anything, and 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 to not let society, their family, their competitors their friends know that they're really going through a tough time, which in my opinion kind of leads to that whole stigma thing. But the the concept that, um, you know, from, from, from early childhood, you know, boy falls down and skins his knees and, you know, he's told to get up and, you know, you know, big boys don't cry. And so from an early stage, they condition the male gender in this country and most societies to, to to suck it up and to not show any type of vulnerability because that would appear as weakness. And they they, they basically are, are sending the message that even if there's something wrong, don't admit to it. Just try to work your way through it. Um, in your opinion, how does that damage the, the, the mindset of, of an individual who may really need to seek out some mental health, but it's so afraid, or I don't want people to think I'm weak. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you named that, that there is a very strong gen- gendered connotation of men, particularly with help seeking. And I've seen it impact friends of mine on a personal level. I've lost two close male friends to suicide in recent years. And it shows like it affects you both personally and societally. If you look at statistics, like by and large, it is men. And often it's like older men, sometimes in rural areas, like that my home state um, within like the dairy farming community, because of these farm shutdowns that keep occurring, mm-hmm. they lose the sense of purpose that they've put so much of their identity into that it really does cause issues or there's yeah, either a lack of resources or as, as we're talking about this perceived sense of, I can't be weak. I'm the provider mm-hmm. for my family. I've been told by everybody in my life that I need to be strong and that my tears aren't allowed. And there's really, yeah, these like socially prescribed ways that men's mental health issues can be presented. Primarily anger or violence are the ways that many men are conditioned to present that. And any other more vulnerable emotions like crying or 
excitement too um, are frowned upon. And we see that that has some really damaging implications for us as a society. Like I said, you know, the high statistics of suicide and other mental health issues of increased violence throughout the U.S. um, are just a few examples. Mm -hmm. Great, great, good point. Now, the the other thing that I I think is interesting um, is that they recently um, launched the uh, the 988 uh, crisis hotline number. Um, that in and of itself, you know, had been widely debated whether it was going to be effective or not effective. Um, and it is, a, a, in my opinion, it is a reach to say, OK, we, we need to do more than what we're doing. So um, what, what are your thoughts on on the whole concept of that 988 uh, crisis hotline? Right. I know I've been coming at this from a very clinical angle, so I'll put my little macro hat on for now. Um, And a lot of the discourse that I've seen around it is, yes, this is great. And it lays the groundwork for a resource that's absolutely critical. Right. As as we've established already, the last several years have been undeniably difficult to collective mental health, whether it's climate crises, isolation from pandemic. Um, racial unrest, civil unrest at large, you know, there's so many things that, again, on an external level, this goes beyond just like individual genetics are creating a lot of stress and presenting issues for people with, you know, with their mental health. So to have more resources is absolutely non-negotiable, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. The difficulty lies in There's been conversations, again, going on for years at the federal level about states implementing crisis hotline numbers like this, but not appropriately staffing up their agencies or making sure that there are enough trained professionals who are there to respond with empathy appropriately and, again, to make referrals to resources that can help people adequately remediate the reason that they're calling and meet them where they're at in a point of crisis. So I think that that is one of the biggest issues that's been identified is, okay, federal hotline number was put together. We've got 988. People know to call that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that my rural hometown actually has the mental health providers who can answer Mm -hmm. that call. And so they're either going to get deferred to like a local police department, which may not be what a person wants when they're in a point of crisis. Or it gets kicked back to a federal level, somebody who's maybe not as, you know, culturally aware, personally aware of what this person is going through in their community. So, um, of course, yes, it's great, but, you know, there's a big but there. Mm -hmm. And I think, of course, with implementation of any new program, there's going to be growing pains. And I know it's been in place for a few months here, so hopefully they can only continue to iterate and states will catch up. Mm-hmm. and realize that this has great value to the people in their communities. Um, but again, it's also meeting people when they're at the point of crisis. And I think it really, you know, bolds, highlights, circles the need for more resources prior to people reaching that point of crisis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That makes sense there. But yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah point, point well taken. Now, um, the, one of the some of the research that was done um, at uh, the height of the pandemic, and you know, there's many documented stories and articles, was that there's the need for licensed and trained social workers was going to grow exponentially 
after the pandemic was over because of all the isolation. And, 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 and we, we, we looked at the how it affected um, school-age children, especially those suffering from social anxiety, those who are deficient in social um, emotional learning, but also the elderly, you know, have, have suffered a lot. So the understanding is that we need to, you know, make sure that, you know, we have enough trained social workers and several individuals on the professional level that I've spoken to have said that, you know, once this is over and it's declared that it's over, the need for um, us as social workers is going to grow. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on, you know, things that social workers bring to the discussion as it refers to mental health? And, and, and stress and, and, and need that, you know, maybe the general public doesn't understand. Because I still don't think that there's a great great enough understanding of who we are and what we do. So talk to our listeners and viewers a little bit about what do social workers bring to the discussion, pointing to the fact that they said there's going to be a need, a greater need for more social workers. Why is that? Right. I mean, just now you you kind of said it. You said that this is affecting school-aged children, it's affecting older adults, and really everybody in between. And that perspective alone, just knowing the demographics, knowing that it's everybody in your community who's affected, I think is an integral part of being a social worker, right? And the profession itself is so broad. You see the infographics all the time that Social workers are people who are working in your government buildings, they're in your hospitals, they're within schools, they're within community centers, they really are in every corner of the world. And mm -hmm. issues like a pandemic, issues like civil unrest, they pull every system and basically corner of daily life to mm -hmm. into that argument, basically. I don't know if I am articulating that as well as I would like to, but... Mm -hmm. I think the point is that social work touches every facet of human mm -hmm. life because humans are what we work with, right? Yes. We work mm -hmm. in communities. We work in these systems and agencies that are absolutely important to, you know, society advancing, mm -hmm. for like lack of a better term. And I think social workers understand that it requires partnership and visionary leadership and being a resource or sharing resources and being one of these, um, not an equalizer, but a conduit, you know, mm. there's a lot of school social workers who are saying, okay, well, this kiddo needs community resources. They need, you know, some behavioral health support, or it would be really great if they can volunteer or go to this park more often, or, you know, just, they have a better scope of understanding of, um, human need and also mm -hmm. how to show up within a community okay all right um that's, yeah that's my knee-jerk oh, response oh, there okay. but I'm happy to keep kind of workshopping yeah so so you know and, and and that's 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 really good that you you brought up all those points because again you know that there's always this need to kind of keep reminding society and the general public of you know all the the different ways that social workers contribute to a healthy and a whole society. And like you said, in so many um, facets and areas. So um, we can never say enough about the profession and and, and what we and, and they and us, what we do. Uh, but we want to make, make sure we keep 
uh, hammering that message home so that the general public, you know, constantly gets reminded of all the different areas that social workers can play an integral role. Now, one, one of your um, areas, other areas of expertise, um, healthcare quality improvement efforts. And I know you've done some studying on what that looks like from a, a clinical or, or hospital stay or hospital visit or doctoral doctor's visit. Um, what is that uh, healthcare quality improvement effort? Um, how do you define that and how is it measured and what are the effective ways? So what does it look like? How is it defined? And what are effective ways to measure if patients are getting the quality care that the healthcare uh, system says that they need? Right. This might be where I get a little wonky. And there's multiple <laughs> there's multiple limbs to this quality improvement world that I'm living in. One of them is strictly <laughs> mental health related. Mm -hmm. The other is more clinical health related, as okay. you said. Mm -hmm. And so before we got on here, I was like typing, 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 trying to kind of collect some thoughts. Mm -hmm. And the idea of quality improvement as a theme, like the first thing I want to say off the top is just that it all aligns with the ethos that we have as social workers of meeting people where they're at, right? Mm -hmm. Like the quality improvement efforts that I've been involved with fully center on both the mental health and the health is personal narrative. Like, what do you think of this experience of the services that you got when you sought them? What was helpful? What could have been different? And that looked different. So I think that's kind of the beauty of the work that I've been in is mm -hmm. one of them was direct sit down clinical interview with a bunch of individuals throughout the U.S. Mm -hmm. who had depression or have depression. And I have the whole packet of questions. I wasn't the one who did the interviews. I mm -hmm. did clip cutting of these interviews mm -hmm. and we put them together into a film to be shown in clinical settings. Mm -hmm. So the point being that these like um, faculty and staff meetings within a hospital or a clinic could look at this video and say, oh, wow, I really never thought of prescribing medication in this way or combining it with a, you know, a referral to a community group, how mm. having that social support could be a really great value added to some of my patients. Um, so I'm already kind of running down one lane. I can okay. try to stay there. We'll stay. Okay. 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 So to preface, <laughs> I'm talking about this film that we put together called the Depression mm. Catalyst film. And the namesake catalyst comes from the, the idea of basically triggering this like thought process within staff in clinics to kind of improve the quality of their work using patient narrative. So mm. that the I came onto the project to do the clip cutting and some of the literature review, but this involved these several hour long interviews with individuals with depression, asking the questions that I referred to. And then we pulled together insights from a variety of people under several like umbrella themes. Mm. One of them was medication. Some of it was the value of having rapport with your provider, the importance of having pets or, you know, other things outside mm -hmm. um, and all that. So it was a lot more just like face-to-face -face communication, asking questions, you know, from the patient perspective and really uplifting that. Mm -hmm. And then switching over to the other modality quick, and then I okay. can answer any follow-up questions. <laughs> okay. The other modality was a lot more survey-based. So this had to do with the hospital system in New York. And I get all of the survey data of this. It's a pretty standard 
survey that's given to patients afterward, basically, mm-hmm. what did you think? What could have been improved? And mm-hmm. so on. And then we added a few more open-ended questions um, that I cannot think of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. But the the aspiration there being that people would respond more open-ended too mm-hmm. and say, well, actually, it really means a lot to me that my doctor comes out and sits there with me after my appointment and talks me through what we all went over and makes prints off the recommendations, puts them in my hands. And then I go, mm-hmm. things like that, where those responses are then put into a report and directed right back to those hospital staff. Mm-hmm. So the idea being that these direct responses that are actionable and tell them exactly what they did right or wrong or how mm-hmm. they could be improved can be given on a more immediate basis to improve care in real time. Okay. So yeah. this is my quality improvement universe that I've been spending <laughs> the last couple of years in. And the reason that I can't just identify with like, I'm just a mental health advocate. I'm just a health advocate. Mm-hmm. I really like love swimming in this mm-hmm. big, messy universe. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> any questions that came up, I'm happy to elaborate. I'm happy to share more about that work. Okay. And, uh, it's, and then you mentioned, you said the, the, the film, the name of the film is again, um, it's we call it a catalyst film, and the okay. catalyst film is more like a canon of films. There are several more in production on different topics. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of that being like genomic cancers, where people knew ahead of their diagnosis that that they were maybe they had a rare mm-hmm. disease, mm-hmm. things like that. And then there's several other conditions, and even a COVID film that we're hoping to put together. So. Mm-hmm. Because that has been just such a salient part of mm-hmm. global society, really. Um, it's, a, it's a great way to kind of utilize these insights and put them into practice in mm-hmm. ways that are very iterative and innovative. Okay. Now, are these films, are, are they just mainly for um, healthcare and mental health professionals to help improve the quality of their service or would the general public also be able to to access these films or this just maybe a a quality improvement tool? So they are publicly accessible. Uh, Mm -hmm. The idea behind it was for more of this kind of co-creation of care within Mm -hmm. clinical settings. Mm -hmm. So that could extend to therapists, to social workers, to health clinics. And I think that's really up for them. It's pretty novel within the U.S., in the UK, this modality also exists, and it's under the namesake trigger film. Mm. But of course, you know, with the US, we have severe gun violence issues. We went mm. for a catalyst film because that's a little bit more, you know, it, it's more all encompassing and still conveys the same message about transformation within care. Um, so, all that said, though, I, I do think that the films are really interesting to watch and not just as like a mental health nerd. I think think that there's value in it for people who are maybe shy about seeking care, that they mm. can watch this 20 minute long video of a diversity of people from all over the state saying, well, you know, what really helped me was actually telling my provider that I don't like it when they do this, that, or the other thing. And then they actually heard me and they applied that or, Mm. you know, there's all kinds of things. And again, it's not one size fits all. And Mm -hmm. that was actually one of the themes was that mental health care is not one size fits all. It's really kind of emphasizing that point that meeting people where they're at and tailoring the approach, working with them, fit, helping them feel empowered was the value added. Okay. All right. Um, 
Now, the, the, the concept of, uh, of suicide prevention, um, and there's also a term, um, postvention, um, with the onset of the pandemic, we know that substance use um, issues, overdoses, and suicides have ratcheted up. So, uh, in your opinion, how do uh, mental health professionals, social workers, um, mental health counselors, psychiatrists, doctors, how, how do they grapple with the the increase? Because it, 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 it's at a crisis level right now. The, between the overdoses, um, the suicide attempts, how, how does that um, get addressed, in your opinion, from a mental health slash social work point of view? Right. And Overall, I just, as you say that, I feel the gravity of it mm -hmm. and the burnout that I know a lot of my peers are in. Just gr like graduating. I got my MSW into the pandemic. I graduated mm -hmm. from my mom's couch, you know, <laughs> and going into the profession, mm -hmm. like that was my entree. I just have so much love and empathy and also just fear and dread that mm -hmm. goes right along with it for the environment that a lot of professionals are showing up in. And you see it in statistics of 93% of healthcare professionals wanted to leave the profession because they're being asked to do what feels impossible. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that we can respond is more mm -hmm. of this cross-sector leadership. It's more advocacy. It's more of this collective impact. And when I say that, I hope it doesn't just sound like buzzwords. What I mean is really galvanizing behind this common cause that as a society, we're not okay, right? We see just growing prevalence of a lot of these issues in the form of the substance use disorder, increased suicidality, increased isolation. And I don't think one single professional should be asked to fix that issue, mm. but the more that we can kind of exchange ideas mm -hmm. and create a united front and really say like, hey, time out society, like, we, we got to fix some things. And I think mm -hmm. part of that is being more proactive. Again, yes. I can't overstate enough. So much of our response is crisis-based. It's not until you're at your lowest need mm -hmm. that we're meeting you or seeing you mm -hmm. or you aren't. It isn't until you hit a point of rock bottom that you finally say, yes, I need help and feel okay saying that, mm -hmm. or that that's like your only way out. Mm -hmm. So. I think that means a lot of things, right? Like there's so much that we can do on individual and systemic levels. And a big channel for that is advocacy. And yes. since, since I got involved and became like a burgeoning mental health advocate, I would say this was like a lifelong thing because again, it's personal experience that brings you to social work, to mental health and so mm -hmm. on. Um, it wasn't until I found this student organization called Active Minds that I really found my advocacy voice. Mm -hmm. But sorry, there's geese flying over, mm -hmm. so you might hear that. <laughs> it's okay. But, um, uh, it's advocacy. It, that was really where I found a way of feeling like I was making a difference, but also mm -hmm. finding community and inspiring others to talk and speak mm -hmm. up, you know. And I've seen such a metamorphosis within the mental health community, even mm -hmm. in the eight to 10 years that I've been doing this. And there is like the needle is moving. And I'm mm -hmm. so happy to see that. I think there's a lot more normalization, even platforms like TikTok that all mm -hmm. of the young ones are on. Mm -hmm. um, 
<laughs> create like it it is a form of community and there's a lot of education that goes on on that app yes. i also have a little bit of trepidation about mm. just lay people sharing deeply clinical information and mm. there's a lot of harm that can be done there too where people are self-diagnosing i have adhd things mm. like that mm-hmm. but at the same time there is a lot of great awareness building within that mm-hmm. and i can only hope that the more that we do that the more that we're vulnerable the more that we educate the more that we join forces and don't say well i'm not a doctor so i can't be involved or you know i think taking ownership of it is mm-hmm. a huge, huge part of it okay all right you mentioned something interesting you, you talked about um Active minds. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about that. that. That sounds like something of interest that they should be yeah. be educated about. I feel like Active Minds' biggest unpaid spokesperson, but <laughs> Active Minds was really transformative. I could get emotional talking about mm-hmm. it, but like I said, I kind of felt like I landed on my two feet when I found mm-hmm. that student organization at my university. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, it's a it's a national organization specifically catering to college students, but it has since moved on to K-12, which is amazing to see that that impact is growing. And I guess another point I'm making is starting from a fundamental level, like telling young kids that their mental health matters can have such amazing impacts on their like longer term trajectory. That's my aside. But (laughs) so Active Minds is an organization that has multiple chapters, you know, tons of chapters throughout the U.S. It's grown Mm -hmm. significantly in recent years. Mm -hmm. And it was started by Allison Malman, who lost her brother to suicide while he was a college student. Mm -hmm. And she opted, you know, of course, there's a lot of pain and grief there, but she knew that she wanted to make a difference in the Mm -hmm. way of suicide prevention. So she created this organization on her campus. I think it was Penn State was maybe the preliminary chapter. Mm -hmm. And that grew. So she created this model of basically education, awareness, stigma fighting, and their um, key term, changing the conversation to basically, you know, it could be tabling on your campus, doing a bipolar disorder awareness week or month, or hosting a de-stress fest, and really just kind of helping campuses normalize Mm -hmm. the use of counseling and testing centers. And again, this overall stigma reduction effort. Mm -hmm. So my campus already had a chapter of that and it was relatively small and I joined as a freshman and Mm -hmm. then um I think I ran for executive leadership because a lot of the um upperclassmen were going to graduate out Mm -hmm. and then ended up president (laughs) in my sophomore year (laughs) it was was one of those things I think somebody stepped into it and then realized it wasn't for them or they Mm -hmm. had another obligation but that was like a blessing in disguise it was completely life-altering, life-changing, and such an empowering experience for me um, to realize that I wasn't alone because Mm. as a young kid in the household that I grew up in, I think it felt really isolating at times or I didn't think that my peers understood what it was like to have a parent with like a chronic mental illness. Mm -hmm. Um, So to kind of have just people who innately understood that and to be able to share that in a way that other people realize, oh, hey, I'm not alone in this either, was mm-hmm. incredibly valuable. And from a professional skills standpoint, like undergrad was great. The classes were great. But that was one of the things that I felt like I really um, grew 
a ton for them professionally. Okay. And are, 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 you, are you still actively involved with, with Active Minds too? Well, so <laughs> I'm flirting <laughs> with them all the time. I've applied yeah. to them so many times, actually. But yeah. um, I do try and stay involved with their alumni network. I've, mm. you know, I keep up on everybody on LinkedIn. And okay. I love seeing like the extensions of what they do. Um, and it's, like I said, amazing to see that they're expanding to like the K-12 level because mm-hmm. it, it's, proof positive that what they're doing works. I think mm-hmm. they have enough of a legacy and a record to to prove that this peer education movement is not only empowering, but it's educational to others and can really have um, downstream impact. Your hand is in so many different pots, <laughs> but um, and you're yeah. doing such great work. Um, is, is there a way for people to, to, to follow what you do or, you know, learn more about what you do is in, in, in a general sense? Uh, you know, like a website, you know, that features your work or anything like that that you like to share with listeners and viewers? Hmm. I did have a Squarespace for a while, but I deactivated mm. it. I got shy mm. because I'm like, what am I doing? I'm doing too much. <laughs> but LinkedIn is a good universe to connect. Okay. And then okay. we can always go from there. Um, okay. I do. I have a personal podcast and it, it does kind of touch on some of these stories from mm-hmm. a different lens. It's a more personal lens, right? right. Um, mm-hmm. but it's called heirlooms. And it's, it's kind of talking about these things that we keep with us for generations, whether it's mm-hmm. a tradition or a tchotchke or some story that just has stayed with you or your family forever. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. it's about these legacy projects that we create with our lives. Like, wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's something I just got very fascinated with. And I realized it's a channel for telling some of these really difficult stories about my family that like, you know, could be like airing dirty laundry, but telling it from the story of an heirloom as in like, for example, there's a Captain Kangaroo doll that my dad had. Mm-hmm. And that was a source of comfort for him in a really mm-hmm. tenuous environment. Mm-hmm. And so being able to kind of center the story around like, well, what did Captain um kangaroo mm. ex- like what did he witness in that household and mm. basically yeah not always telling the full story but like right. i don't know if i'm making much sense on, no. that, on that front but yeah just the things that stay with us and wow. how they gonna help us through and where's that where's that podcast available so I'm on Anchor. I'm on Spotify. Okay. I'm, yeah, on Apple. It's only a few episodes, um, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm really hoping to keep it going. Wow! And uh, when did when did you launch it? Um, it that was kind of a serendipitous thing. I I got a microphone for Christmas um present last year and okay. i was like okay i guess i have to make this podcast now <laughs> and so i, I love it i love around. it <laughs> i toyed around i made a little ad for it like the trailer thinking mm-hmm. okay nobody's gonna find this it's untouched and then a few days later we went to go play cards with friends and they're like oh my gosh i love the intro to your show and i'm like how did you find that <laughs> um so there was kind of a pressure to get it going um and so i put a lot of energy into it in the spring summer everything in life came at me and now mm-hmm. i'm trying to pick it back up again um mm-hmm. but yeah that, okay. that's one way too okay. it's, it's definitely so, more personal personal tone but that is okay. a good, good feel for what i'm up to in a way i kind of try to marry my passions and yeah <laughs> okay so listeners and viewers there you heard it first um <laughs> make sure you check out heirlooms um produced and hosted 
by Miss Haley Ingersoll, and it's on Anchor. And if it's on Anchor, that means it's also on Spotify and Apple and Google. So and make sure you check it out. That's right. <laughs> I love that we have this common interest. Yes, absolutely. Podcasting is so fun. Yes, it is. Yes, I'm not an is. award-winning podcaster like Silas, <laughs> but I do what I can. <laughs> well, I, well, you're on your way. You're certainly on your way. So as we get ready to wrap up, um, it's been a wonderful, enlightening conversation with you. One of the things I like to do at the end of each podcast, I like to give my guests um, a chance to leave listeners and viewers with something that you would like for them to carry um, going forward, um, some parting words of wisdom. So um, what, what would you like to share with um, listeners and viewers before we wrap up? Oh, man, that's tough. Yeah. I have a hard time finding <laughs> articulate, but I think I really got on a soapbox just now about advocacy. Mm-hmm. And I think we can become intimidated, myself included, when you, you said, well, you're a subject matter expert on something, Haley. Like, oh, I don't know if I if I can step into that. Mm. But the point is, like, if you care about it, you can be an advocate about it. And yes. advocacy looks like 10 million different things. So finding that strength and that interest and the passion that you have and just being authentic with that, being outward with it, it's it's going to make a difference. There's someone out there who needs to hear that. And yeah, everybody has that within them. I think it's really just taking a chance, tapping into what you know you care about and showing up in your community, finding that community could be online somewhere. There's probably a Twitter group or somebody who's out there podcasting about this thing that they give a big crap about mm. and being able to convey that is one of the most meaningful things you can do in your life and okay. it can impact others. So be an advocate. All right, there you go. And on that note, uh, we're going to wrap it up for this edition of the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate and we've been having a delightful conversation with Miss Haley Ingersoll. Uh, she's MSW and also a uh, policy and administration and mental health and wellness advocate. Thank you so much, Miss Ingersoll, for joining us here on the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. Thank you, Silas. This has been so wonderful. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate and host of the show. You've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast. This and all other programs are available on the Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Anchor podcast platforms. Go to any search engine and type in Kelson on the Air in the search window to hear this show in its entirety. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelson Communications production.